Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we delve into what it means to be bold. If you're climbing, hiking or running in the mountains, there will always be an element of risk. But being bold is not necessarily just about physical risk, of course. At some point, we all encounter mental barriers. Whether it's a fear of falling, a fear of failure, or trying to adopt a mindset for optimum performance, simply to be the best we can be. Here's a glimpse of what's coming up. Rather than going out on your own and that sort of spiralling self-talk of I'm really frightened, I'm really frightened, or I'm really bad at this, I'm really bad at this, you have someone to shake you out of your spiral. There's someone with you to say, you can do this. Our guest in this episode is Rachel Crewsmith, a woman who loves an adventure. Whether it's winter climbing on Ben Nevis, mountain biking across Nepal or trad climbing on a sea cliff. Rachel loves it all and she's passionate about sharing her knowledge and skill. Rachel works as an instructor, coach and mentor. She combines a technical knowledge with a strong background in coaching. She played and coached hockey to a high level from a young age and she's coached climbing for the BMC. She's also part of the Women's Trad Festival. Rachel talks about her work and is uniquely placed to share insights on dealing with fear of heights, a fear of falling, being bold and generally getting the best from yourself. Rachel has a wonderful energy and infectious enthusiasm. Rachel, great to see you. Where are you at the moment? Um, I'm actually in the southwest of England, Andy. I've been, um, I'm in that stage of my life where I'm on endless Hindus and weddings and they all seem to be in the southwest this year. So I um, spent the week down in Cornwall climbing with a friend in between two of these Hindus. So I'm, yeah, I'm in the southwest in um, my friend's bedroom near the curtains to try and make it less echoey. Well, thanks for joining <laughs> us. So let's let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, it sounds like you've always been interested in being active and sport. I mean, you were into hockey, weren't you, as a young person? Yeah, well, I grew up in the Midlands, um, and there's not many mountains in the Midlands. It's just sheep and motorways. But what it means is there's a really good network for team sport. And the school I went to was particularly strong in team sport. So I played hockey and netball and I went orienteering and athletics. But hockey was my thing. So I played um, I played regional level hockey. I started coaching as soon as I was able to, really, when I was about 13. I did my first um, assistant coaching qualification and worked my way up through. So I went to university and then played hockey sort of national league and then um i have two caps for mixed hockey for wales so i've played internationally twice what attracted you to the coaching aspect because certainly you know being a mountain guide myself that personally that was something i had to really work on like i had the climbing skills but the coaching element i have to work on that and then when i uh was trying to get better at skiing, I was actually coached myself and that was the first time I'd been coached. I actually really enjoyed it, although it was a really sort of unusual experience for me, you know, receiving feedback. What was it that attracted you to the, that coaching element as well as your own sort of higher level hockey? Well, it's funny. I think I was the opposite. I think I'd rather, the coaching is the thing that comes naturally to me and feels stronger. And I've had to work harder on the personal performance side of the sport sports that I do and people would say that I was a high performer but I would say I'm a, above average or maybe you know below high performance and it's the coaching it's the imparting of skills and knowledge that 
I enjoy and that I think is my particular talent. So I, I wanted to coach because I wanted to help other people to enjoy the sports that I enjoyed. And that feels the same in the outdoors. You know, I came to the outdoors relatively late. I was 19 when I started climbing and a lot of people now are five when they start climbing. But because I had this background in sharing information and imparting knowledge and skills, I found it easy to switch into coaching in the outdoors from coaching in team sports. It's the same, just different shoes. Do you think it is the same? I just think, because I know you've, you've also coached for the BMC on the Talented Youth Climbing Programme. Um, how is that different to say hockey, which is a team sport, and climbing it to some extent in climbing competitions it is an individual sport? Well, that was funny. At the time, I was a totally unknown just girl from Cardiff, from the climbing wall. And I remember turning up and there was Pete Whitaker, Katie Whitaker, Tom Randall was there. And they all said, oh, oh, hi, I'm this, I'm this, I've climbed E9, I'm Rachel, I've not climbed any of those things. <laughs> but I feel... No pressure. Well, I just felt like it was the same. I felt like it was easy to transfer those skills. It's right, this is how you execute a skill. Let's break that down. Let's try and do it on the wall. And in maybe introducing some of those team elements of that come from more formal team sport into climbing, so getting people to work together, getting people to think collectively, that felt quite fresh in the outdoors, whereas it's been going on for ages in sport. Yeah, I mean, moving on to maybe an environment where the team thing is much more important, being in the mountains, which is another part of your uh, life, working in the mountains. Um, how has that helped? I'm just trying to think of, I know you did a lovely post the other day about taking, tell us the story, actually, I don't want to spoil it, but you, you took someone out in, in, in North Wales and um, somebody who had a fear of, I don't know, what would you, would you call it a fear of heights or just a general fear? Um, Tell us about that and how your coaching from a, a team point of view and managing those sort of things has, has helped. So this man had contacted me through my website because he'd heard me on another podcast actually for the BMC um, called Wild Horizons. And I talked about Cumidwell, which is my favourite place. We recorded it in lockdown actually, and I wasn't in Cumidwell, so it's quite difficult. But he said he took me this really detailed route description of a walk he wanted to do in the Carnedi, asking me how close the path was to the drop. And I had to admit, I couldn't even think how close it would be. And he was so worried about this walk. I said, well, why don't you come out for a day and we can talk about it? So he did. Um, and I feel like he had defined himself as being frightened of heights. And he told all his friends he was scared of heights, but actually he wasn't that scared of heights. He was just, he told his brain that he was frightened of those things and no one had said to the contrary. So I just spent a bit of time with him working as a team, working together to go to the edges, look over the edge, be exposed to that fear and then realize that, oh, there's somebody here with me who's telling me it's okay, looking after me you know, looking out for me and I, I, would, I didn't push him. I just said, well, we'll go to the edge and then we'll come back again. 
And by the end of the day, he said that he was, he wasn't cured, but he felt much more confident. He went on that walk the following day and looked over the edge and sent me loads of photos of the edge. Um, and it just, I suppose it's rather than going out on your own and that sort of spiraling self-talk of, I'm really frightened, I'm really frightened, or I'm really bad at this, I'm really bad at this. You have someone to shake you out of your spiral. And that, you know, that's in any sport, that, that's definitely the same in hockey or, or running or climbing. Is there someone with you to say, you can do this? Nice. Yeah, really good. And um, I guess for somebody who has that self-image, that self-talk, that's, I guess, a barrier, isn't it, to lots of things. So if you're, I mean, for somebody, it might be actually just going walking in the mountains. It's just such a big thing that they might think it's not for them or they've seen pictures, a lot of pictures we see in media of people doing really extreme things. Um, and then you might have somebody who's walked quite a lot and then moving on to a scramble is pretty terrifying for a lot of people. Do you get a lot of people that you're introducing to scrambling? Is that a big part of your work? Yeah, I always say, though, um, you need to go climbing before you can go scrambling. I think it's this funny ladder that people think the progression is to walk and then to scramble and they've done a grade one and then they think I'll do a grade two and actually grade three scrambling is is mod climbing isn't it or diff climbing or some of those scrambles like vs I think especially when it's raining so I always say to people come rock climbing which shocks them and they don't want to do it but trying to say look you need to push yourself you need to stretch your comfort zone more in a safe environment of of climbing with a rope and gear and belays before you can go scrambling. And that's what I'm really interested in is the stretching people out of their comfort zone. But, but there's a theory about you learn best in your stretch zone, but you don't learn when you're in your panic zone. So that gentleman last week, if I pushed him into his panic zone, the blinkers come down. I call them the panic straws. You know, when you can only see through two straws you can't see anything around you. Um, you become internally focused and you can't learn. So it's finding that balance between comfort zone and stretch zone, which is hard to do scrambling because often you're not attached to anything and you're in a pretty serious situation. So if you come rock climbing, there's a perceived danger, but actually you're pretty safe because you're attached to a rope. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that I find that, yeah, because scrambling, I don't know, is there a rule where people get to a certain point and then use a rope when they're scrambling or not? I mean, I tend to, obviously, when I'm in the Alps working, you've always got a rope. But introducing my daughter to scrambling in North Wales, but she was so young, I'd always have a little rope there just as a, a confidence thing. I mean, how do you approach that or, or pass? If people want to go on and scramble themselves, do you advise them to use a rope or...? Yeah, definitely. But again, you, you need to have those rope skills and that grade two, you know, the British grade two is the most grey, isn't it, of the grades. I always say to people, grade one, you generally don't need a rope, but grade two, you probably might need a rope, which is really grey. And grade three, you'll definitely need a rope. So taking people on to grade two and then just using a rope the whole time works quite well. But teaching them the judgment between when you need a rope, when you don't is the hardest bit. Think of scrambling i'm sure you find the same absolutely yeah that's that's the point i'm getting at it's really hard isn't it with scrambling because so much of it is that judgment 
which comes from experience. And there's no shortcuts to that, really, I guess. And moving no, and together, all those skills. That's why you need to go rock climbing first. <laughs> so what's the biggest attraction of, you know, your job for you? Is it, is it that coaching, Ellen? Is it just being outside? Is it a mixture of all of that? It's definitely developing people. And that's taken me a few years to realise that that is my love and also, I suppose, my skill is developing people. And you're just using the outdoors as a medium to teach that. I mean, I could be developing people in a hotel room, couldn't I, in a function room, doing building towers out of straws and sellotape. But I prefer taking them into the hills. And I've really learned that over the last three or four years, that taking people like that gentleman on Wednesday or... I do quite a lot of work with women who I know locally whose partners are good climbers. You know, I live in Clamberis. It's a melting pot of great climbers. Their partners are great climbers, but they don't have very much confidence and their partners aren't very good teachers because that's not their job. So I'll take them and do some multi-pitch trad, helping people to have the confidence to go out independently. That's the thing that I really like. And it actually doesn't matter what sport it is. It just happens that I quite like climbing and I like being in the mountains, so I'll do that. I guess you probably haven't been in that situation then, in a, a sort of climbing relationship where the guy is sort of more, you know, if you like, sort of doing the leading, which is the classic cliched thing, isn't it? Were you always somebody who, like, no, I want to be out in front no. of myself? No, I had a relationship like that myself, where the... My boyfriend, when I was in my 20s, was a very good climber and I just followed him up loads of things. In fact, climbing this week in the southwest, there were loads of routes of E2s, E3s, E4s. I've done that. I've done that. And then I thought, I just followed it. I probably sat on the rope half of the time. Um, and it was only when I that relationship ended that I realised that I had to go out and do it myself. Now I have sometimes a strange flip where it's often me who's the one who's the more experienced climber. Um, and so I, I quite like helping people through that experience. Men as well, you know, if they've got a partner who's a better climber, maybe I'll take them climbing and give them some independence because it, it's really hard. If, it's easy to, it's a very British thing to be just taught by your friend, isn't it? And we've all been through that apprenticeship and that works to some extent. And certainly I was taught on an apprenticeship by a friend from university. But if that person taking you climbing isn't interested in teaching or isn't very skilled at teaching, then you can end up having quite a bad experience. Yes, I was just wondering how it works. I think it's brilliant what you're saying and, and, and doing. Um, if you, I mean, if that person then goes back to the you know, said partner, how do they then say, oh, it's different now. I want to, you know, I guess they have to negotiate or just say, look, yeah, you know. I suppose it's also branching out and finding some other climbing partners isn't it going to find some different people to climb with i run the um women's ready to rock courses on behalf of the bmc and that's quite a nice way there'll be six people usually women who want to come and learn the basics of trad so i mostly teach them just to build belays at the top because that's what you can do in a day you play loads with gear and then they can make friends with those other you know it's a good way of networking and making some new climbing partner friends Brilliant. and i know you're you've been involved in a big way with the the ram women's trad festival tell us a little bit about that are you going to be there this year because i know there's one coming up 
Yeah, it's coming up at the end of July. Buzz um, in that. I mean, just tell us a bit about what it's all about and how is how is it? You know, what makes it special? So I head up the mentor team. I've been volunteering with the Women's Trad Fest since it started. This is number seven. We had a couple of years off for COVID. And I've, I started off just volunteering, but in my capacity as a mountaineering and climbing instructor, but it was a bit of a busman's holiday because I had to teach two novices to climb, but also oversee the whole crag, which felt a bit hard. Um, and I've pushed and pushed and pushed with the Women's Trad Fest to make the professional women more visible. And part of that is being paid and being paid a fair wage for the work that they're doing because I really feel that the women who are now working in the mountains and at the top we didn't have a women's trad festival to push us and we didn't have all these visible role models we had to do it more on our own and now I think there's loads of opportunities for women to or anybody marginalized that it's it, there's more and more opportunities and I want to really appreciate those professional women who got there on their own the trailblazers I suppose Brilliant. so I now head up the mentor team to select the professionals and we've got 34 mountaineering professionals working at the women's trad fest this year wow yeah it's it's incredible they're not all women it's hard there's only 10% of our industry are female and not everyone's available and not everyone wants to come to that event so we have quite a lot of men as well but I think that's also really important because I think women can get stuck in a little rut of thinking that only women can teach them and that men are scary and that's perpetuated on Facebook forums because someone had a bad time on their ML training with an instructor that made them march around and shouted at them and I'm really keen to show that there are some excellent men working in the outdoors and that you can have a really positive experience with a man as well as a woman so our mentor team are pretty much 50 50 this year and I just coordinate them and send them all on their way and the mentor would look after three leaders they all have a rock climbing instructor or the old single picture ward and each of those leaders has two learners who are novices so it's a nice little pyramid of instructors and the idea is that the Rock climbing instructors get loads of new ideas and help and support in teaching their novices. So hopefully they come away with boosted by this CPD that they've had from professionals. Brilliant. Sounds like you've, uh, you've got a plan. That's definitely the plan. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do next. We have to make it even better for next year. But the being, you know, being paid and being recognised and being put on a pedestal like that has, has been really important for me. And any special stories of people, you don't have to name them, that have come on the Trafest and you've really seen them kind of develop, maybe people from, um, you know, diverse backgrounds who didn't even think climbing was for them. And then to go and do, you know, to go trad climbing. Yeah, there's a, a couple of women who came as learners on the first ever Women's Trad Fest and are now working as mentors this year. So that's an amazing story. And they're not necessarily from... A marginalized background but they'll have seen that whole pathway through to being a professional through the women's trad fest so it's, it's visible the first uh, female mountaineering instructor i met 
I almost chewed her arm off in excitement because I'd never met one before. I thought it was only men did that. And now I feel like there, you know, there's quite a lot of visible women where you can look and say, ah, oh, I could do that too. And it, they're not superstar climbers. They're what I call a stepping stone role model. So they're someone who's there. It's an achievable thing to aim for their job. There's a few other people who come to the Women's Trail Fest who probably yeah, didn't think that they could do it and didn't think that it was for them. And they've gone on to, they share through Instagram, we've got this hashtag, my climbing story. And I see it all the time reshared by the Women's Trail Fest that they're off climbing and maybe they are not the body shape of someone who would be in the climbing media, or maybe they're not the same skin color but they're going out there and doing it anyway and they're getting loads of support for it. So things like the Women's Trad Fest, the Women's Climbing Symposium, that gives me joy that those people have accessed something that they might not have known was for them. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, there just seems to be so much energy in, in this area and like loads of barriers that are being broken down and it's just easier. You know, I'm thinking about when I started climbing. I mean, there was a lot of check shirts, beards. I mean, it was proper old school, you know, in the 80s. And... Um, there were women that climbed. I've climbed with women. I've been to the Himalayas on trips with, with women. But now it just seems, I don't know, it seems like, uh, yeah, an exciting time. Yeah, it is. Those women, I think we mustn't dismiss those women who were there doing it anyway, even though they were check shirts and beards. They're really important to me that we recognise them. But now maybe there's, there's still check shirts and beards, but maybe there's maybe those check shirts and beards are more open to seeing different people come climbing because because there's more diversity so people start to accept it and definitely the younger generation i think there's less check shirts and beards because they're more used yeah, to being i hope this is not going to become a hashtag i've got quite a few nice check shirts and occasionally if i don't shave you know what i mean well, I'm into a hole here it's great. I think it's, you know, it's the winter uniform, isn't it? <laughs> Let's talk about your journey in the outdoors, how it started, and what sort of barriers you felt you had to overcome. You know, which, I mean, it is, which is saying it's, it's, a, it's still a male-dominated industry, isn't it? Instructing, guiding. Yeah, I came sort of the route through climbing walls. So I finished university and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I went to work in a climbing wall, Boulders in Cardiff. It just opened. I didn't have any qualifications. So I just hoovered behind the walls for about a month until I could do my single picture ward at the time. Um, and I worked my way through there because I had this background in coaching. But the coaching awards hadn't yet been set up. But somehow I found myself you know, going to a meeting with the coaching board who were setting up this course. And I, I said something very slightly obnoxious to one of the mountain guides who was on that coaching board. I said, well, what do you know about grassroots coaching? He said, well, I'm a guide. But you don't know anything about climbing walls. I think that's when the BMC gave me the job on the talented youth scheme. <laughs> I... I think as a woman, I've actually been afforded a lot of opportunities because I was in a minority. So I don't feel that I've come up against lots of barriers. And that's not to say that there aren't any. That's just to say that I perhaps had the right mentors and the right people pushing me through. Because I feel like I've had 
some good opportunities based on being slightly different. And whether that difference is my gender or whether it's because I came from sport, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd like to say it's because I'm good rather than just because I'm a girl, but sometimes it is because you're a girl. And so I, I imagine you, you exude confidence, if I may say so. I mean, you know, both in terms of your work in the mountains, but presumably having that success, you know, in, 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 in hockey or whatever, at such a young, young age and going through that coaching, presumably you kind of have that solid sense of self in a way. Going back to the self-image, self-talk, you'd, you'd been through all that. So although this was maybe a new world when you when you came into the outdoors, you got that solid base. Is that true? Or yeah, well, I used to coach on these hockey camps where we got paid a hundred pounds a week, and you worked from when you woke up to when you went to bed. And I had twenty-four children in my group, often pretty high performers. I'd have an assistant coach and a sort of apprentice leader as well, and I was. 17 and I was you know looking after 28 people so I'm used to standing up in front of people um but I've worked quite a lot on that self-talk I think when I first started well I left boulders and I went to do the, the instructor development scheme at Glenmore Lodge and I think I'd read about imposter syndrome and I decided that I had imposter syndrome and so that started to manifest in everything I did that I had imposter syndrome. And then one day I left Glenmore Lodge and I thought, I don't think I do have imposter syndrome. I think I've just been told that that's what I should have. And so I spent a lot of time working on my self-talk and the way that I present myself and the way that I step into a room. You know, if you heard the phrase, I am a lion, where you put your arms above your head and stretch and say, I, I am a lion. So I would walk into a room standing upright saying, I, I deserve to be here. So rather than saying, oh, I'm an imposter, I would say, well, actually, I, I'm slightly unique and I'm going to take up that space in that room instead. And that's just, you have to take a deep breath and be bold, but that's worked for me. And it, it, I'm not always confident, but give myself a little pep talk before I go on stage or before I go up in front of people and, it seems to be working. Brilliant. And then if you, I mean, and, and having that um, experience, having worked through that process, and then I would imagine spotting that in other people when you're mentoring them and being able to pass on that is so valuable, as well as all the technical stuff around climbing and mountaineering and how to look after yourself. That kind of mindset thing is what you're talking about and helping people to break down barriers, right? That is absolutely my favourite thing. I, I tell mountain leaders when I'm training them that the technical skills should just be a given. You should just be able to navigate and you should be able to, you know, choose a route and you should be able to tie knots or whatever it is. That is a given. The thing that makes you stand out is the way that you look after people or the way that you develop them. And I, I had a lady in December last year who came just for a couple of days out of, she just wanted to go climbing it was raining so much so we went onto the east face of Trivan and we went scrambling and she she climbs severe her boyfriend climbs E2 she works at a center full of boys who climb hard and she didn't think that she could ever progress in the outdoors but she was such a talent at scrambling she could she could find the route she could find the gear you know tiny horrible little 
spikes and things. She was so good at it. And at the end of the two days, I was like, you, you can do this. You know, maybe you can't climb VS at the moment, but if you spent a whole summer going climbing, you can climb VS. And I had this real buzz from finding this talent and then hopefully nurturing it. So she's coming to the Women's Trad Fest this year and she keeps in touch with me. And I'm hoping that we'll maybe see that, you know, as a different type of leader in the outdoors. That gives me an absolute thrill. I'm trying to think what, well, uh, one of my questions was, what's the biggest attraction of the job for you? But you've, you've answered that already. So I guess the other thing is what, what's the scariest bit of the job? Is there something that, you know, keeps you awake at night? I suppose the obvious scary thing is scrambling in the wet. I mean, that's terrifying. I sometimes think I don't have, I'm not being paid enough to go out in this rain when there's no gear and no ledges. But actually, you can, you can control that mostly. The thing that scares me is this idea that you can spend a lifetime building a reputation and it takes one mistake for it all to fall down. And I, I sort of feel like sometimes in the outdoors, you know, it's a great industry, but it's a competitive industry. And trying to navigate your way through that while maintaining the respect of your peers, but also the respect of your client base and your audience. And the way that you speak to people, maybe through social media, is different if you're speaking to your peers than it is to your audience. And I, I'm trying to find my voice amongst that, I find that keeps me awake at night. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I wouldn't know that could be an almost a, a separate podcast, to be honest, but it's, it's huge. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. You know, for the last few years, developing my career, and part of that is telling your peers that what you're doing is good. And so maybe you would project that through social media, you know, the practice that I've been doing or the qualifications that I've been doing. And now suddenly I've got a few more followers and have a more public profile. And actually the message that I want to get across is not to my peers, it's to that new thousand followers who maybe want to learn about the outdoors or maybe need to know that you shouldn't light a fire in Glencoe. And so I've changed my language and the way that I write things, but I think that there's a few people sniffing at that. And so it's how to make sure that I still maintain that professional reputation so that those people will employ me, but that I can still get that message across to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, well said, like interesting. Thanks for being open about that. I guess um, you just find your way, it's such a, a new thing, a relatively new, a growing thing. So when you talk about making a mistake, it's it could be on a social media platform, not not necessarily out on the mountain. Yeah, I guess as a, as an industry, we're we're finding our way with that as well. How to manage the content and the voice and all that kind of thing. Yeah, there was an interesting article the other day on UK climbing about so how to build your social media presence, and it got absolutely slammed in the comments. Um, and I found that interesting because UK Climbing is as much a social media platform as Instagram is. It's just maybe from a different generation or a different demographic. And I thought it was strange that people were poo-pooing Instagram and yet they were all set on UK Climbing moaning about it. 
sort of finding our way through that yeah as an industry and you know if you look at some of these influencers on social media who've got 30,000 followers but they're carrying a 70 inch ISATS over the CMD at 5 p.m in the winter you know they're the ones with the voice and the message not not us so how do we tap into that I think they're called early adopters how do we tap into those early adopters to pass on our message because it's not coming from us I think you've just got to have confidence in the messages, the practice and everything you're, you're putting out there. I'm sure you'll, you'll find a way. And I think there are always going to be the odd voice out there with negative comments. And you've just probably got to grow thick skin, I would imagine. You know what you're doing is right when you're on the mountain. And the feedback that you're getting from clients is so positive that, you know, you're doing a great job. I wanted to think, you've talked quite a lot about coaching that's a bit of a thread through this conversation. Is there like, if somebody wanted to know more about that side, uh, either, either as a, just a climber or a, an adventurer or someone thinking about getting into the industry or somebody already in the industry and they wanted to develop those coaching skills, is there like a Bible book about that or anything that you've ever read that like that influenced you in that sort of coaching development role? Or was it something you just picked up along the way really? I think I've been fortunate to have been coached by a lot of people through hockey, netball, and then through climbing. And like you said, Andy, you, when you're being coached at skiing, there's a lot to learn, isn't there, from the coach? So I, my theory has always been, well, you'll even learn something from a bad coach. Might just be how not to do it. I had a dreadful coach my third year at university. He used to come in, we'd play a game at the end of the coaching session, and he would tackle people with a full body check or hook their ankles and I was like this is a women's team in the mid-league and you're a man and you've just smashed someone over and injured them I thought well that's how not to coach so I've been lucky to absorb some of that information I suppose but there are a few good books there's a new coaching book out by Dan Wilkinson and Paul Smith which features lots of anecdotes from well-known coaches throughout the industry so not just mountaineering but mountain biking paddle sports mountain running and so that's a really nice book um and then there's the mountain training coaching award scheme so the foundation coach you, know, you don't need to be a particularly high performing coach to attend that course and that sets people off in a nice direction of how to coach climbing in an indoor setting but all of those skills are transferable into the mountains. Thank you. To finish, I want to get an idea. I know you've done so many kind of crazy adventures, biking across Nepal, you know, lots of climbing adventures, working in winter in Scotland. What's your favourite? Do you have a favourite? I know it's a bit of a journalistic type question, isn't it? What's your favourite type of day out, really? What are the ingredients? And I know that you really, you, I, I get the impression you really like nice food as well because you, you hint at that on your website, which I love. <laughs> nice. Tell us about Rachel's a classic day. Well, lunch is really important and the worst ever days are where you forget your lunch, aren't they? Absolutely the worst. Um, my fate, I think the elements for a good adventure are not about what you're doing and they're not about the objective they're about the experience and for me the experience is all about the people that I'm with so I do a lot of stuff on my own but 
actually sharing the day with someone great is the main driver for me. But it would usually involve some kind of long journey, preferably some easy rock climb or scramble. So you're moving quickly, but you're getting up high. Um, I'd like it to be nice weather, but not too hot. So I don't like, I've had heat stroke and so I'm not very good in the sun anymore. Um, but it's, it's all about the people for me. And that sort of, I talk about the chemistry of adventure. So you might go out with somebody for the day and get nothing done because you don't have the right adventure chemistry. And that's not a romantic thing. That's a, that's an, a personality thing. So if your personalities mesh, then you're going to have a great day. So yeah, long route with a great lunch, preferably a baguette and some salami and a bit of manchego cheese. That would be my dream. Brilliant. Pre presumably in your, you know, you've obviously got regular folk friends, partners you go out and have adventures with, but then with working, you might also have return clients, but I would imagine quite a bit, you get people that you don't know, like the gentleman you went out with recently and presumably a big skill, a big part of the, your, your job challenge is building that chemistry quickly at the beginning of the day. Yeah, I think that's, I'm, I'm quite good at that, building relationships quickly. Um, a, a colleague of mine once said that a day out with him should feel like a day out with an old relative. And I thought that was a really nice way of describing it. So trying to find common ground with people. In this instance, actually, we talked about wine quite a lot with that gentleman last week. So it was all about what wines that we liked. I'd recently been on a wine trip to France. Um, yeah, finding the common ground is is a, a challenge, but I really enjoy that. Brilliant. Listen, Rachel, it's been fantastic to chat with you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, and your adventures, and all the best uh, with everything. And the Women's Tradfest, which is soon-ish. Yeah, end of July. Brilliant. I hope that goes well. Take care. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon.